All right, good morning, everyone. Let's pray here. Get started on 10 o'clock. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for blessing us uh, with a church. Lord, your people are always a joy to fellowship with. And uh, we thank you, Lord. You died for, for all of us here. And uh, help us to grow in our fellowship. Help us to grow in our understanding of who you are, uh, Lord. And pray you humble us as we talk about the Trinity. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you've gotten a knock on your door. Uh, it was a pair of people that were very well-dressed, and they were ready to tell you all about Jehovah, right? And maybe you, you hid the first time, or you opened the door, didn't know what you were getting into, and after a while, you start realizing it's false teaching, right? They're telling you uh, that Jesus is not God. They're telling you that the Holy Spirit is not God. That only Jehovah is God. And so, uh, as we continue in our study in the Trinity, it is very important for us to be ready to share the truth in a loving manner and in a biblical-based approach. And so, uh, just even this weekend or, or this week, you know, you see people that are just zealous to tell, quote-unquote, their truth, right? I, I remember, uh, I think it was on Tuesday, someone came with their political campaign and they're telling you about, vote for this person, right? Because Tuesday is that special election. And, and they're very zealous. And, you know, I asked them a question. Um, then I gave them a gospel track because they gave me some material. And it's just interesting how people are just so willing to go to your door uh, to tell you about something they really care about. And so as we go through this study of the Trinity, keep that in mind. How are you with telling others the truth? How are you with telling others uh, the beauty of the Trinity? And so, uh, as we go through the study, may that motivate you as you think about this. Just, are you zealous for the Lord? All right. So, we're going to recap a little bit, since this is a part two uh, message. Last week, we looked at the doctrine of the Trinity is progressively revealed in Scripture, right? How the partial revelation in the Old Testament, we looked at some verses there um, in Genesis 1, right? Let us create... Man in our image. Uh, we looked at the angel of the Lord. Um, you know, who is that, right? He is called and referred to as God. The angel of the Lord, obviously, is the messenger, the pre-incarnate Christ. And so we saw the Trinity in, in different aspects, right? But then, when we go to the New Testament, we see a more complete revelation. And we get those verses in, in Matthew 28, 19. We see to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We also mentioned at the baptism, we saw all three persons of the Trinity. And then we went through all these different verses that show that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so we summarized the Trinity in three statements. And that is, God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there is one God. We also discussed how there are times where people are trying to make it really simple, yet they end up denying one of those biblical teachings, one of those three statements. We also mentioned how all analogies have shortcomings. If you remember the three-leaf clover or, or the three forms of water, right? Ice, and then you have liquid, you have gas. And we saw that none of them uh, give a perfect illustration of the Trinity, and then lastly, we, we mentioned that God eternally and necessarily exists 
as the Trinity. He's always existed as the Trinity, and he always will. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And so today, we're going to look at three more uh, key points for us in the Trinity. And so that is, number one, eras have come by denying any of those three statements summarizing the biblical teaching. Number two, what are the distinctions uh, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Uh, I think it was Evan who brought that up last week. We'll get a little more into it this week. And then just the application. What does it mean that God is Trinity? What does it mean for us? Okay, so why don't we begin with the eras. And so we mentioned a little bit last week about modalism, right? I really want you to sink in on this teaching because it's really important. One, it protects us from heresy. But number two, when you encounter someone uh, who, who might just say they're Pentecostal, but they're not just uh, a basic Pentecostal, they're a oneness Pentecostal, which is, like I said, uh, they believe in modalism, we need to be prepared. And, and just to testify about this, uh, when I was in college, uh, one of my uh, friends uh, that was going to the Bible club, um, he was in a oneness Pentecost church. And he was very like, hey, you know, uh, this is what I believe. You know, they're telling me to get baptized in Jesus' name only. What do you think? And I said, well, what, what do they believe about the Trinity? Oh, you know, they believe the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're all the same person. And I was like, whoa, 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 hold it up. And so that's when we had a conversation about it. And so just important to know uh, these terms, right? Because it could really help someone long-term um, in their doctrine. And so modalism claims that there's one person who appears in three different modes, right? Modalism, modes, three different forms. And so a modalist would say in the Old Testament, God appeared as the Father. Throughout the Gospels, the same divine person appeared as the Son in the human life and ministry of Jesus. And then after Pentecost, this same person then revealed himself as the Spirit who was active in the church. And so there's some big terms that uh, also are known as modalism. And it goes back um, in the third century, right? Uh, we have this man um, who uh, founded this thing called uh, modalistic monarchianism, right? And, and so their belief is that God is one supreme ruler, right? He's one monarch. Like, there can't be more than one. And for them, when they study or, or they see the scriptures and they see that the Son is referred to God, the Holy Spirit is referred to God, uh, in their mind, they're going to say, wait, 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 no. God can only consist of one person, right? That's kind of one of the arguments that the Muslims use uh, with Allah. Uh, they, they don't like this whole Trinity aspect because, obviously, one, it's really hard to understand. But number two, uh, for them, God can only be one person. And so the modalist is going to argue from John 10.30. So why don't we go there? Uh, we're only looking at two or three verses today, and I think it will be really important for us uh, to look at these main verses that they use to defend their false doctrine. So it's John 10, verse 30. And like I said, this is early on, second, third century, with Sabellianism as well. This guy named Sabellius in the third century, he, he founded this uh, false doctrine. And so the early church fathers, they would argue and discuss, and, and eventually we'll get into the Council of Nicaea. But we see here in John 10, 30, and... and Remember, context is so important, right? And they're going to argue verses out of context. And even today, like I mentioned early on, the Jehovah Witnesses do this as well. So John 10, verse 30. Uh, Victor, can you read that for us? Okay. Uh, I am the Father of one. 
Okay, so from them, they see that verse and, whoa, it teaches what we believe, that the Father and Jesus are the one same person. <laughs> is, is that what the scripture is telling us there? No. Uh, even if you go back uh, a couple of verses before that, uh, we see here Jesus in verse 25 Answer them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, they testify of me. So there, even in that verse, we see two different persons. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, referring to Jesus, right? And then, what about verse 29? My, uh, it says verse 28. Uh, 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So what's going on there? So here we're referring to Jesus. Uh, no one snatched them out of my hand. And then in verse 29, the father's hand. And so when people are going to try using these verses, like John 10, 30, I and the father are one, they have to look at the context. And then, of course, Jesus here is not saying he's the same person. So that's number one. They're going, uh, you know, they're using a verse out of context. And then number two, of course, is, is talking about one in uh, essence or nature, unity, uh, in purpose. And so uh, they really don't have any good verses. One more. Go to John 14, verse 9. So a modalist is also going to argue, and for those who came a little late, it's really important to be prepared to give a defense for the faith and to know the scriptures, because there's many false teachers coming about, and, and obviously in the end times, way more false teaching is going to come about, so we need to be prepared. John 14, 9, <laughs> again, they're going to argue. You see here, this is the same person. Look what it says, John 14, 9. Now, after talking about Philip, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And <laughs> so... They're going to argue again. You saw me? I'm the same person as God the Father. And so they're going to use these different um, verses out of context. And uh, they don't really have any good biblical basis. We even went uh, through this on Wednesday, just talking about uh, the heart of the Son reveals the heart of the Father. Um, and so they are one in unity. Uh, if you've seen Jesus, if you look at the beginning of John and how he even... Uh, proves that Jesus is God, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and there's their distinct persons. It's talking about how Jesus explains the Father. And so, again, they're using these verses out of context. And so, just to summarize modalism a bit, it must deny the personal relationships within the Trinity that appear in other scriptures. It must deny the three separate persons at the baptism of Jesus, right? They can't make sense of that. Uh, it must deny the three separate persons um, uh, at different times in Scripture that we see them together, uh, like we said, all those verses in Corinthians and whatnot. And then also, uh, what about when Jesus is praying to the Father? Again, if they believe in one person, he's praying to himself. Uh, and they also deny uh, the idea of the Son interceding uh, and the Holy Spirit interceding before God the Father. And so again, they, they deny so many doctrines, they even deny the atonement, right? Since God sent his son as a substitutionary sacrifice and that the son bore the wrath of God in our place and that the father saw the suffering of Christ and was satisfied. They have to deny all of that. And, and Jehovah's Witnesses, they do that today as well. They deny um, justification by faith alone, which we'll talk about. And so 
Uh, there's so many truths that modalism denies. It also denies the independence of God. Remember, one of the incommunicable attributes. They have to say, if God is only one person, then really he has no ability to love and communicate without other persons in his creation. Therefore, it was necessary for God to create the world. And then, obviously, we would argue that God will no longer be independent of creation, right? If he was only one person, there was never love within himself, right? In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If he was only one person, he really did need the creation to show his love and have an interactive relationship. Okay, now, I know that was one big one, but we got some more. Arianism, all right? So here's another false doctrine. It denies the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, modalists, they're going to argue, well, God is one person appearing at different times, different modes. Arianism is going to say, well, you know what? No, the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're not even God. Okay? Uh, and so, let's talk a little bit about the Arian controversy. Uh, Arianism is derived from Arius, right? He's a bishop of Alexandria, who views, uh, were condemned at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. And so Arius taught that the God, the Son, was at one point created by God the Father. And that before that time, the Son did not exist, nor did the Holy Spirit, but the Father only. And so the, for them, it's the Father was there first, uh, from eternity past all that, and then Christ came. And so what argument are they going to use uh, for this teaching? Well, they're going to say... Uh, that though the Son is a heavenly being who existed before the rest of creation and who is far greater than the rest of the creation, he is still not equal to the Father in all his attributes. Uh, he may be said to be like God the Father or similar to the Father in his nature, but he cannot be said to be of the same nature as the Father. And so they're going to depend on verses that say that Christ is God's only begotten Son. Right? If Christ were begotten by God the Father, they reason, it must mean that he was brought into existence by God the Father. Because that word beget, it means in human experience, uh, it refers to the Father's role in conceiving a child. Right? You begot, you beget. And so this is going to be the last verse we look at for today. Go to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. And maybe you've... Uh, interacted with any JWs who used this verse. I was at a Peruvian restaurant once when my family were eating, and one came up to me, and, and you know, she was nice. She said, oh, beautiful family. <laughs> and she gave me one of her JW cards. And, you know, we were speaking Spanish a little bit, and uh, she was saying Jesus wasn't God, and I was pointing her to scriptures. And even the Colossians 1 verse is a good verse to point that Jesus is God. But they use it out of context again. They, they play semantics with the words here. Uh, so who's got it there? Colossians 1.15. Sure, you can read it, Jane. Good. So again, context is really important. Let's look at the verses before here. Verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now referring to Jesus, he is the image, here it is, of the invisible God. Okay, um, But here's the, here's the point they're trying to use with this verse. The firstborn of all creation. Okay, so talking about creation, we see here, and this is how they're reasoning. 
all right, then Jesus was a created being because he's the firstborn of all this creation, right? They use that word, firstborn. Now, we know in other scriptures, firstborn is talking about preeminence. A lot of translations, uh, they actually say the firstborn over all creation. But even then, just look at the verses after it. Verse 16. For by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created. And, and so, okay, all things were created. So did Jesus create himself? Like, what's going on here? If they're going to use that verse to try to say that Jesus uh, was a creation. But no, it says that all things were created by him. Uh, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And here's a key one. For him. It's all for him. And so... We'll get into it a little, a little bit later, but if it was all for Jesus, then wouldn't that be um, putting a creation before God? And again, so that's, that's one point. And then look at here, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, pointing to his deity, uh, verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Talking about the deity as well. And so, these verses read in context, and you got to be very patient with them because they're going to only see it the way they see it because they don't have the Holy Spirit uh, to illuminate their minds. So that's why we need to be in prayer, fasting for them, and, and when we approach them, be very loving. So let's continue here. What happens? The early church reason, with all the texts that point to the deity of Christ, the word begotten could not mean created, right? The Nicene Creed in 325, affirmed that Christ was begotten, not made. Right? If you read all the creeds, the confessions, um, they reason there in the early church that begotten, but not made. Right? It had to mean something else. And so they also concluded that if Christ is not of exactly the same nature as the Father, then he is not fully God. And so they're going to reason and argue that Christ had to be of the same nature of the Father. And so they confessed that uh, early on. All right, any uh, questions or comments here before we continue with some eras um, talking about modalism? All right, and so we continue here with subordinationism, another big word. just simply means that the Son was eternal. So we're talking about modalism, Arianism, and here uh, the argument is that the Son was eternal. Okay, so yeah, God, uh, God the Son, Jesus always existed. Okay, he wasn't created. All right. He's divine, but he's not equal to the Father in being or attributes. Uh-oh, what's going on here? They're teaching that the Son was inferior or subordinate in being to God the Father. And so, of course, this is also a false doctrine. Um, because then it's going gonna, it's gonna to argue that uh, the, God the Father is really more worthy of all our worship, more worthy than God the Son. And so kind of putting odds within the Trinity, uh, or putting, pinning them against one another. And so there was one man, Antonatius, who stood up for this correct doctrine of the Trinity. Um, he devoted his life uh, to writing and teaching against the Arian heresy. And so again, I remind you from the beginning, it is really important for us to have this zeal for the truth. And, and these men, these godly men uh, in the early church, they stood up for the truth. When they heard false doctrine, they didn't just let it slip aside. You know, they didn't just say, oh, that's not a big deal. No, they stood for the truth, okay? And so they denied modalism, Arianism, subordinationism. Let's continue here with the importance of the doctrine of Trinity. Uh, six points. Why is it so important that we believe, believe in the Trinity? Number one, 
Again, the atonement is at stake. If Jesus is merely a created being and not fully God, then it is hard to see how he, a creature, could bear the full wrath of God against all of our sins. Could any creature, no matter how great, really save us? Right? If, if that's your belief, um, that a creature uh, saved us. Number two, justification by faith alone is threatened if we deny the full deity of the Son. If Jesus is not fully God, we would rightly doubt whether we can really trust him to save us completely. Could we really depend on a creature fully for our salvation? Number three, if Jesus is not infinite God, should we pray to him or worship him? Who but an infinite God could hear and respond to all the prayers of all of God's people? Who but God himself is worthy of worship? It would be idolatry to worship Jesus if he was a creature. Number four, if someone teaches that Christ was a created being, but nonetheless one who saved us, then this teaching wrongly begins uh, to attribute credit for salvation to a creature and not God himself, and that would exalt the creature rather than the creator. Number five, last two here, the independence, like we mentioned, and personal nature of God is at stake. If there is no trinity, then there was no interpersonal relationships within the being of God before creation, and without personal relationships, it is difficult to see how God could be generally personal or be without the need of creation to relate to. And lastly, number six, the unity of the universe is at stake. If there is not this perfect plurality and perfect unity in God himself, then we have no basis of thinking there can be any ultimate unity among the diverse elements of the universe either. And so these are reasons why the Trinity is important. Um, and lastly, one more error here, tritheism, which we mentioned last week. It denies that there's only one God, and it teaches that God is three persons, and each person is fully God, so that's good, but... Uh, they're going to say <laughs> there's three gods, right? They're not going to believe in one God. Um, and there would be no absolute worship or loyalty or devotion to one true God. We would wonder to which God we should give our full allegiance to. Uh, and this view would destroy any sense of ultimate unity in the universe because in the very being of God, there would be this plurality but no unity. All right, so lots of errors. Again, any questions uh, with all these false teachings? Has anyone ever heard some of these false teachings? Yeah, it's scary. I, I know uh, T.D. Jakes will be someone that uh, believes in modalism, so we've got to be very careful with these teachers. All right, some discussion questions since I've been talking too much. Uh, number one, so why is modalism wrong? Can someone sum it up to me? Why is it wrong? It doesn't seem like a hurtful doctrine, right? Why is modalism wrong, would you say? If I believe in modalism, yeah, go ahead, brother. Or, yeah. The, mm -hmm. Yeah, it takes away the deity of each person. Well, modalism in particular would teach that there's only one person, and so they would say, yeah, the Father is God, yeah, the Son is God, yeah, the Holy Spirit is God, but there's no, like, distinctions. It's just the same person being that God. So that's kind of what they would say. Yeah? That would imply that God changes, wouldn't it? That too, Yeah. They say, well, at one point he was God the Father, and then at another point he's God the Son. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, what about, like, when Jesus is getting baptized, they say, like, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, like, in one place? Yeah. So what is modalism? Like, how would you explain Exactly. And so <laughs> that is the main argument uh, to use when you're talking to a modalist. Um, they would just say it's unexplainable, 
God can do that. <laughs> you know, they're not going to have any good. And that's the other thing. When you're talking to these people with uh, false teaching, again, I mentioned they don't have the Holy Spirit, so they don't really understand the scripture. But number two, they really are just trying their best in their flesh to make sense of the text, right? And so they're going to try uh, to say things like, well, we can't really fully explain it, but, you know, God is God, right? Um, and so we need, to, we need to challenge them. You know, it's nothing wrong with saying, hey, what about this verse? And that's what God uses to change their mind. Uh, once they see it in Scripture, you're like, hey, you're right, that doesn't make sense. And then they see the other Scriptures that point that all, per, uh, all persons of the Trinity are God. They're going to say, oh, wait, maybe I'm wrong here. Uh, but yeah, good. Second question, or Sam, go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah. So, were you here last week? Yeah. So last week we kind of went into it, but I am going to talk about it a little bit more moving on here. Um, but yeah, again, simply three persons. Each person's fully God, one God. Not a contradiction because we're not saying there's three persons and one person, three gods, one God. Um, but yeah, we'll get into it a little bit. So uh, the next question uh, we mentioned this: Why is it so important to believe in the Trinity? Right? Can you really be a member of the Bible church or any biblical church if you don't believe in the Trinity? Why is it so important? What's a simple answer to that? Uh huh. Yeah, I like that. It's in the Bible. <laughs> you can't get away from it. Um, it's biblical. Uh, we mentioned that the atonement is at stake. Uh, we mentioned that um, you know, then the God wouldn't be independent. You know, he wouldn't be self-sufficient. And so there's so many key points to why we believe in the Trinity, but good. All right, so the distinctions. Let's talk about this for a little bit um, within the Trinity. And so the persons of the Trinity have different primary functions in relating to the world. Uh, we see this in the work of creation, right? We mentioned this briefly last week. God the Father spoke the creative words to bring the universe into being. But it was God the Son, the eternal word of God, who carried out these creative decrees, and the Holy Spirit was active in moving or hovering over the face of the waters, apparently sustaining and manifesting God's immediate presence in his creation. So that's one, uh, one way that we see uh, different primary functions relating to the world. Second way is in the work of redemption, right? God the Father planned redemption, sent his Son into the world. The Son obeyed the Father and accomplished redemption for us. God the Father did not come and die for our sins, right? nor did the Holy Spirit, but it was the particular work of his Son. And then after, Jesus ascended back into heaven, and the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to apply redemption to us, and is especially the role of the Holy Spirit to give us regeneration, new spiritual life, to sanctify us, to empower us for service. And in general, the work of the Holy Spirit seems to be to bring to completion the work that has been planned by God the Father and begun by God the Son. And so we can conclude that the Father has authority over the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so the persons of the Trinity, they're equal in all their attributes. They nonetheless differ in their relationships to creation. And so the Son and the Holy Spirit, yes, they're equal in deity to God the Father, but they are subordinate in their roles. Does everyone understand that with the Father having authority because he's commanding the Son to do this and the Holy Spirit? Okay. But... 
it's not to say they're not equal. And we'll see some examples of this. Uh, we'll get into it uh, with marriage and, and, and different uh, um, analogies. So second part I want you to look at is the persons of the Trinity eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We mentioned this last week again. Before the Son came to earth, even before the world was created, for all eternity, the Father has been the Father, right? Again, going back to the unchangeableness. How long has the Father been the Father? He's always been the Father. How long has the Son been the Son? He's always been the Son. Uh, same, with, same with the Holy Spirit. And so these relationships are eternal, not something that occurred only in time. And so we may conclude this from the unchangeableness of God. And so if God now exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then he will always exist as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It may be said that there are no differences in deity, attributes, or essential nature between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God and has all the attributes of God. The only distinctions between the members of the Trinity are in the way they relate to each other and to creation. In other words, they are equal in being but subordinate in role. All right? Let's continue here. So the next question here is, what is the relationship? And this kind of maybe goes back to the answer of, or answering Sam. What is the relationship between the three persons and the being of God? And so it's really important to understand the difference between person and being. And so how do we start? First, by affirming that each person is completely and fully God. That is that each person has the whole fullness of God's being in himself. Right? So the Son is not partly God or just one-third of God, but the Son is holy and fully God, and so is the Father and the Holy Spirit. So it would be not right to think of the Trinity with each person representing only one-third of God's being. We must say that the person of the Father possesses the whole being of God in himself, same as the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so somehow God's being is so much greater than ours that within his one undivided being, there can be an unfolding into interpersonal relationships so that there can be three distinct persons, all right? And so the struggle is, Sam, we, we tend to think in finite categories, right? It, it's something really hard for us to understand because, you know, we don't, uh, we're not a trinity ourselves, right? And so this tri-personal form of being is far beyond our ability to comprehend. It is a kind of existence far different from anything we have experienced and far different from anything else in the universe. And so the question we have for us is, can we understand this doctrine of the Trinity? Now, it is not correct to say that we cannot understand the doctrine of the Trinity at all. We can understand and know that God is three persons, right? Like, like Mike said, that it's in the Bible that he's three persons, that each person is fully God, and that there is one God. And we looked at verses for all those teachings. And we can know that some things about the way in which the persons relate to each other, but we cannot fully understand how it all fits together in those teachings. And so we wonder how there is these three distinct persons, and yet each person has the whole being of God in himself, yet God is one undivided being. And so ultimately, it's, it's, it's humbling, right? It's truly humbling. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, he writes this. It is especially when we reflect on the relation of the three persons to the divine essence that all analogies fail us, and we have become deeply conscious of the fact that the Trinity is a mystery far beyond our comprehension, is the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead. All right, any questions or comments there uh, on the Trinity? Yeah. So it's not hard to understand that God is here, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh huh, uh huh. Yep, yep. Yes. Yes. Mm hmm, mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're actually going to get into that with the, the application of marriage. Yeah, so that's, that's not a bad example, actually. I think it's a good example. But it is a difficult teaching. And so, like I mentioned before with the Muslims, they're going to go to all the difficult teachings we have and avoid all the clear, simple, uh, without question teachings, right? For example, you agree Jesus is God. They're going to say, whoa, 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 time out. He's, he's a prophet, you know. Uh, <laughs> but there's so many scriptures that teach he is God. So they're always going to jump to the harder teachings, and try to uh, be like Satan, you know, be very deceitful and be like, oh, well, explain the unexplainable when they deny the clear, you know. So, but yeah, good, good question. Um, let me ask you this, though. Does the doctrine of the Trinity cause you to doubt your faith or does it encourage you? And I'll be honest, my first year, I, it, was, it was causing me to doubt. I, I was like, I can't understand this. I, you know, God, I need to understand everything there is about the Bible. And so, is it, you don't got it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, no, it's good. It's like the doctrines of the grace. Um, once you kind of start understanding um, unconditional, uh, unconditional election, you start understanding, you know, irresistible grace, and, you know, you don't have to use that terminology. Uh, but even particular redemption, like, those teachings are, are gold, and they're sweet. They're treasures, um, but they're hard teachings, you know, and I, I wouldn't recommend it. Just start off with it. But what I'm saying is, as you continue in Scripture, uh, and this is what the early church did. They, they you know, until Council of Nicaea, they, they were really thinking it through, you know. They didn't just come out of nowhere, hey, believe the Trinity, or you're not a Christian. You know, they, they were thinking it through, and they came out with these creeds and stuff. And so... Um, it's good for us. It's good for us to kind of meditate on it. And I, I believe the Trinity should encourage you. Uh, as, as Evan mentioned, uh, it should just show us, wow, God is amazing. Uh, we can't fully uh, grasp uh, just how amazing. But good. All right. Let's keep going here, though. And we're moving on to application. So kind of what Nancy was bringing out with uh, marriage, we'll get into that. And so God in himself has both unity and diversity. Because God in himself has both unity and diversity, it is not surprising the unity and diversity are also reflected in the human relationships that he established. And we see this first in marriage. In the unity of marriage, we see not a triunity as with God, but at least a remarkable unity of two persons, right? Persons who remain distinct individuals, yet also what happens? They become one in body and mind and spirit, right? We know the verse in Genesis. Um, the two shall become one flesh. 
And so in the relationship between man and woman in marriage, we also see this picture of the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. Um, and this is that one last verse. Uh, I thought I said one last one, but this is it. Go to First, Col- uh, first Corinthians. This, I believe, would be our last verse. First Corinthians. Look at verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 3. Ephraim, if you got that, you mind reading it? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Interesting, right? So kind of talking about marriage a little bit, but also we see Christ, we see God the Father here. And so here, just as the Father has authority over the Son and the Trinity, so the husband has authority over the wife in marriage. Again, uh, we see that uh, they're still equal though, right? And, And there's other verses that point to that. But just as the Father and Son are equal in deity and importance and personhood, so the husband and wife are equal in humanity, importance, and personhood, right? So, you know, we see some similarities there. Uh, and like I said, there's other scriptures that point uh, to equality of, of women and men. All right, let's keep going here to the next example. And so we see here that in the church, we have many members, yet one body. That's in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. We have different members in our church, with different gifts and interests. Uh, We depend on and help each other, thereby demonstrating this great diversity and great unity at the same time. Like, there's some people in our church here that that do the cleaning. There's others that don't. There's people that, you know, help serving with the Agape Fellowship, and there's people that don't. There's people that are preaching, teaching. Uh, There are people that are helping with nursery. Um, You name it. Not everyone here is doing everything, right? We have different people working together, yet we are what? One church okay and so we see different people doing many different things in the life of a church and so we ought to thank god that this allows us to glorify him by reflecting something of the unity and diversity of the trinity and last one here even in the mysterious unity between christ and the church in which we are called the bride of christ we see this unity beyond what we ever could have imagined right this unity with the son of god himself Yet in all this, we never lose our individual identity, but remain distinct persons always able to worship and serve God as unique individuals, right? And we see many of uh, scriptures uh, in Galatians, uh, Paul really saying, you know, um, how he's, uh, in in Corinthians as well, how we're united to Christ. But, But all these are just little faint pictures of that unity and diversity that the Trinity presents. All right, any questions or comments here? Uh, We're going to finish up here with just some last discussion questions. uh, Last question here. What are some other parts of creation uh, that show both unity and diversity? Give me another example. Where do you see unity yet diversity? I gave one example with the church. Anyone else can think of one? Think of work, social organizations, musical performance. What do we see in the musical performance? You got the conductor, you got the flute, piano, you got different people working, yet they're part of the same team, right? Or orchestra. Same thing with uh, basketball, football, 
you got the point guard, you got the coach, you got, you know, today with Super Bowl, you got the quarterback, you got the running back. So you see there's that diversity, right? They all have to play their role, yet there's this unity, right? They come together as one team. All right, so in summary, we need to be mindful of eras when we discuss the Trinity. Really important for us not to sleep on these eras because we don't want anyone to creep in and start teaching false doctrine <laughs> and leading people astray. Number two, the Trinity matters, right? There's a lot of biblical truth that is on the line. Number three, the Trinity is beautiful, right? It's very complex, uh, but it's humbling, and, and we should uh, praise the Lord for revealing to us in Scripture about the Trinity. And lastly, uh, there's unity and diversity, and we are to worship God uh, knowing this mystery of the Trinity. Amen. Let me pray.